Hello, and welcome to the Green Majority, and thank you for tuning in on CIUT 89.5 FM. And I am assured, the fact-checkers tell me, that the Green Majority somehow is Canada's longest-running environmental news hour. And we are broadcast out of the proudly independent and wonderful CIUT in Toronto, or on your wonderful local community radio station, or on some sort of podcast platform. My name is David Franklin Irwin Hostetter. I'm Stephen Christian Irwin Hostetter. And I am Lauren Elizabeth Corlator, and we're your hosts. And today we are celebrating independent media. Yeah, um, and because it's independent radio, I can basically say whatever I want, as long as it's not like A, hateful, or B, um, a swear word. So I, I try to keep those things out of, out of my ramblings. But um, today, taking advantage of my few minutes to say whatever I want, um, letting everybody know what I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about all of the drama that's been going down with Embridge's Line 5 pipeline um, over the last several, well, like years, months, weeks, but it, it's kind of reached a fever pitch in, um, in this country on this side of the colonial border last week and this week um, because, okay, backing up here. A bit of an explainer for people who might not know. Um, line five is like a super old ass pipeline that carries oil basically from, from west to east, the way most of them work in this country. Um, and it snakes through what are considered like the Great Lake, the Great Lake states, one of which is Michigan. Um, it's widely considered to be a bit of a ticking time bomb because it's so old and the infrastructure is so degraded. And so um, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Um, several months ago, ordered Enbridge to cease operations, basically pulled the these decade-old permits that Enbridge had been operating with and said, you have to um, cease operations by, by May 12th, 2021 which is actually today, the Wednesday that we were, that we record this show. Um, and to no one's surprise, obviously the oil and gas industry, and of course, Canadian parliament, because it's in the oil and gas industry's pocket, um, is like super upset about it. And frankly, I'm upset that they're upset. It's, it's, it's an annoying process to have to go through and to have to like, look at your leadership and realize that even compared to like the leadership in Michigan, which I don't think anybody looks at and thinks of is like a super progressive oil free state or oil and gas free state. Anyway, I don't even know what I'm saying there, but basically, um, everybody in Canadian parliament, except probably the greens seems to be expressing distress over, over, um, Gretchen Whitmer's decision to pull, to pull the pipeline permits. Even Jagmeet Singh, leader of the NDP, obviously stated in a press conference a few days ago that the loss of the pipeline is going to mean the loss of jobs and the loss of energy and fuel capacity and what a terrible thing that is. And that's just so depressing because Jagmeet represents a party that sort of posits themselves as like the progressive antithesis to the liberals pipeline loving ways. And they're supposed to be like the most left-leaning party in the country. And if even they're sort of like buying this line from the oil and gas industry, like, like what hope can we possibly have for the parties that are in power? Um, and they're sort of, they're, at least in the NDP's case, it's depressing to see them sort of parroting industry talking points and passing it off as allegiance to, to, to the labor movement, to unions. Um, 
last week to sort of where everything culminated in this like pretty ridiculous emergency debate called in parliament by the conservatives. And basically everyone just got up one after one and, and expressed their outrage at, uh, at Governor Whitner wanting to cancel operations. Um, and it's all just like, it's such petrostate theatrics and I'm over it. So that's what I've been thinking about this week. I recently saw that Joe Biden's proposed budget, this is uh, not something that's been released, but he sent out a, uh, a preview of this proposal, and it will provide $2.5 billion for international climate programs while providing $3.8 billion in, in annual military aid for Israel. So uh, the Biden administration is sending more money to the Israeli military to continue doing what it's doing to the Palestinians and funding international climate efforts less so. And now we're going to go to a short break. And for the rest of the show, we're going to be talking about independent media versus mainstream media. The concept of the circular economy, as put forward by the large economic powers that be recently. And Tim Nash, the sustainable environmental investment guru, will be talking with Stefan about the difference between ESGs and truly sustainable investment or other kinds of sustainable investment. And Stefan will also be speaking with Matthew Klippenstein about a question from an audience member about the um, energy efficiency ratio between coal and renewables in general or wind power was it renewables in general wind and solar coal versus wind and solar And now I wanted to read an article by the editor of The Ecologist, Brendan Montague, which was published a few weeks ago under the wonderful Creative Commons 4.0. Therefore, anyone can use it. And I've I've edited it down slightly. And he tells two stories and then makes a point about uh, media in general. Story number one, October 1842. A local German newspaper has sent its new young hire to report on the proceedings of the 6th Rhine Province Assembly. The young reporter is allowed into the meetings, but is not given a copy of the agenda or the new laws and regulations that are under discussion. The members of the assembly eventually start talking about the law on thefts of wood. The local landlords want to stop peasants from scavenging for dry fallen wood on their land. The change of the offense from simple pilfering to theft would mean that such an act could result in criminal action and prison. The assembly goes further and says those imprisoned for stealing wood should be fed only bread and water while serving their sentence. 
it had long been the culture and the practice that peasants could in fact gather fallen branches to use as fuel, often keeping them alive through the hard German winters. The change in the law would cost lives, but it would also drive people away from freely available fuel to fuel for sale. The law is passed by the assembly. The reporter complains that the assembly acted in the interests of the powerful landlord and not the powerless peasant. Quote, the provincial assembly, therefore, completely fulfilled its mission. In accordance with its function, it represented a particular interest and treated it as the final goal. This is a clear example of a journalist speaking truth to power. The author of this news article was Karl Marx. The consequence for Marx in writing this was that the newspaper was shut down by the Prussian censors, and Marx was exiled from Germany having just been married. Marx had, through a fairly basic act of journalism, attending a local government meeting, seen at ground level how the rich and powerful were extending and completing their control over natural resources, and the most socially important resource of all, fuel. Marx, of course, went on to develop a searing critique of capitalism. He explained how capitalism is organized around capital accumulation through profits gained through the sale of the commodity. The commodity, in turn, always contains both natural resources, including that used as fuel, and human labor. His complaint was that capitalism, as it expanded, would exhaust and destroy both humanity and nature. Story number two. Nigel Lawson was born in London in 1932. His father was a derivatives trader, and his mother was from a family who had made a fortune from stockbroking. He became a journalist for the establishment Financial Times and was successful as a city reporter. Here Lawson entrenched his view that the rich created wealth for everyone. Lawson was headhunted from the newsroom to become a Tory speechwriter. He was later appointed Chancellor of Exchequer under Margaret Thatcher. Both were advocates of neoclassical or neoliberal economics. This is the dominant form of economics, but one where nature has no value until it appears on a spreadsheet as raw material, where climate breakdown is an externality. The dispute at this moment in history was not between landowners and peasants collecting firewood, but about the future of Britain's massive coal industry. The miners had enormous political power, and their strikes brought down the conservative Prime Minister Edward Heath in 1974. When Lawson and Thatcher came to power, the government owned almost the entire coal industry through the Coal Board, and the National Union of Mine Workers and its members were included in the decision-making about the country's energy policy. Lawson and Thatcher changed that forever. They provoked a strike in 1984, and after almost a year, had broken the National Union of Mine Workers, started to close down the mines, and broadened their attack on other major unions. Lawson sold BP from public to private ownership, and British Gas, and British Airways. The mass use of fossil fuels was no longer under democratic control. The media played a significant role in supporting the government at this time. The BBC actually reversed footage of miners who had been attacked by the police to make them seem like the aggressors. 
the newspapers and broadcasters obsessed about the number of miners going to work and ignored the fact that the country was weeks away from running out of coal, which would have meant victory for the miners. Lawson was a former journalist, and the promise to the media was that they would be rewarded for such loyalty. But the opposite happened. Just two years later, Thatcher did to the National Union of Journalists what she had just done to the miners. She supported Rupert Murdoch in buying the Sunday Times, evading the law on monopoly ownership. He built a new print center and began the shutdown of Fleet Street with its plethora of competing newspaper titles. Perhaps most importantly, Rupert Murdoch stopped printing news and turned to celebrity gossip. Lawson was later elevated to the House of Lords and would become Britain's climate denier-in-chief. Thousands upon thousands of journalists have since lost their jobs. The entire apparatus that existed then is now gone. Very rarely now do reporters attend council meetings, local court hearings, or even parliamentary committees. The media should perform some role in making the public aware of the reality of the crisis. The broadcasters and newspapers should amplify the message from climate scientists, should platform those political leaders with real solutions, and should amplify the voices of protesters and campaigners. But what we find today is that the newspapers are owned by the billionaires, the modern equivalent of the landowners demanding people be sent to prison for collecting wood. And these billionaires have no interest in investing in any real journalism. There was no golden age of journalism, but there was a period when there were lots of journalists competing to publish actual news where careers were made by making ministers resign, not from being a minister's spokesperson. This problem is systemic. Power in the news media is now so concentrated that there is no point in appealing to individual editors, commissioners, or journalists. They follow the agenda. They do not set it. We cannot rely on the mainstream media, and therefore we need our alternative media. But there are here problems that are also systemic and difficult to address. There is a chronic lack of funding. There is also a fracturing. Individual journalists are now building closed audiences on Patreon. The rich and powerful are accumulating huge wealth, and in the process building monopolies across industries, and the current government, meaning Boris Johnson, is nothing more than their trade association. This is based on an ideology of individualism and competition. And so far, our response has been to splinter into 100,000 individual publications. More importantly, our news product remains simply a progressive, environmentally aware commentariat. We do not often send reporters into actual meetings. We are therefore not holding people to account. These are complex, difficult problems, and there are therefore no easy, simple solutions. But to conclude, I would set out three simple actions. 1. Support independent media, especially financially. 2. Encourage the media you support to consolidate, network, and cross-promote. 3. Be the bridge between good independent media, the environment movement, and the trade union movement. The media can speak truth to power, but only the power of collective action can actually hold the powerful to account. Yeah, so 
obviously one of the ways you can support uh, in local independent media is by supporting CIUT, the sound of your city, fundraising drive is happening right now. But I also want to bring attention to the fact that this has been, you know, this is obviously the article talking about the UK, but very similar problems have we have been seen in Canada. They, like almost every other week, you see another story about many journalists losing their jobs in Canada. You know, BuzzFeed just shut down Huffington Post Canada a couple of weeks ago. You know, it's to the point where journalists are creating beer funds to support each other whenever they get laid off and they're expecting to get laid off again because of how consistently turnover this is. That said, I will also say that there are a bunch of incredible organizations out there doing some very great work. You know, we obviously have a lot of connection with the National Observer on the show and they do some great, fantastic investigative reporting that should be supported. The Narwhal also does some great work, the TIE. You know, a lot of, the sh- a lot of what we do on the show is really lift up those voices from these great independent media stations. And so our show is not possible without their work as well. And so there is definitely a need to support more independent media. And I think in Canada, we're beginning to see a groundswell actually of smaller groups that are growing and coming out. Dave, when you were talking about, or rather when you were reading what was written in the story about looking specifically at the UK, but but the privatization of, of so many industries in the UK. I, I was thinking about how, how systemic changes like that have been so influential on the way we've sort of reacted to climate change in its current state, thinking about how much more managed and equitable the decline of fossil fuels could have been if energy and fuel and air travel and et cetera was democratically controlled as opposed to privately owned. And how this is no longer an option because these companies were privatized, allowed to accumulate inordinate amounts of wealth through neoliberal regulation structures or or lack of regulations. And then they spun out that wealth facilitated control to news media, took control of the narrative, secured Canada's position as a sort of like emotional, irrational petrostate, and then turned around and put our like supposedly democratically elected representatives like snugly in their pockets, thus rendering our political systems completely untrustworthy. complete but like largely untrustworthy so now when the government for for years people were saying we need to we need to nationalize the energy system and we need to nationalize the oil and gas industry but now when government wants to invest in the oil and gas industry like like they did with um the trans mountain pipeline expansion it isn't to take control of the resources and responsibly manage them and their decline for the good of all people, but instead it's to it's to bolster them up and keep them alive for as long as possible for the good of the industry shareholders they're, they're beholden to for their election campaign dollars. So it's just like, it's this privatization of the news media and of um, previously publicly funded entities in general has created this this. We, we know this has created this like this behemoth this the this leviathan of billionaire owned systems that render us all largely powerless unless like you said we work together and organize and democratically take back control of those systems i, no, I think that makes a ton of sense and the one thing i will will throw in there is that the support for these media organizations also needs to come to the support for the unionization of these media organizations because that is the only way to ensure that that the reporters themselves are protected when they're even trying to speak truth to their the power of within their own industry, which I think is also incredibly important. 
So we can't just be supporting the people who are running these new small independent organizations. We must also support the unionization of these small independent voices, because that is the only way to protect these reporters and allow them to do their jobs, which is holding people to account. Yeah, there's there's this question of obviously we we want to support all of these um all of these journalists and these reporters as they sort of pivot to to these independent maybe like newsletter style or Substack or or, or medium facilitated forms of of investigative journalism and that's so fantastic um, and it's great that they're sort of taking back their voices in that way but but you make such a good point about supporting the unionization of workplaces as well because we can't rely on these journalists to freelance their way through or, or like self-fund their way through through their journalistic endeavors um, and through their sort of like their truth-telling. It's we, we need to rebuild up these institutions devoted to not only supporting the public, but, but supporting the workers. We are stoked to welcome back Matthew Klippenstein, the regional manager from Western Canada for the Canadian Hydrogen Fuel Cell Association and friend of the show. Welcome back, Matthew. Thank you very much, Steph. So we have a section on the show called Mailbag, in which we accept questions from our audience and we try to find, if we can answer them, we'll answer them ourselves. But if we can't, or if we think that someone else might be better to do so, we reach out to them and have them answer the question. And we received a question from a listener a couple weeks ago in regards to a different podcast that they had been sent talking about energy return on investment. And I had an inkling. And so I sent back a quick reply, but I wanted to get a sort of an expert to talk about it. So the question here is, in this podcast, he compares the energy return on energy invested or energy in versus energy out of coal, wind, and solar, stating that in the case of coal, for every unit of energy you put in, you produce 30 units of energy versus wind, where every unit of energy you put in, you only produce a maximum of 10 units of energy, making coal a much more efficient energy system than wind or solar reinforcing his point that in the current way that wind and solar technology operate, they are more detrimental to climate change than coal. This information from this podcast to our listener sounded wrong. They were like, this can't be right. Why on earth would everyone be pushing for climate change to be solved by renewable energies if this was right? But like me, didn't have exactly the answer as to why this was misguided, at least. So putting that question to you, what's missing from this picture? Sure, yeah. So I think that the point is a sincere one. So, uh, and this was actually something from, I think, Jared Diamond had a book about uh, 15 years ago, Collapse. And other scientists have talked about energy return on investment. So if you put 100 units of energy into, I don't know, out of, uh, from coal, do you, how much energy do you get out of it? You spend 100 units of energy building a tur- wind turbine or mining coal or putting together a solar panel. How many units of energy do you get out? And it's a sincere question. It is actually one of the reasons that I became very optimistic about renewables starting about 15 years ago. And I'm not sure where the figures come from that this person cited. Coal with a return on investment of 30, maybe, maybe once upon a time, maybe even in some areas now. But certainly the figures for wind and solar now are way past that. The reason for wanting to make sure that your energy return investment is high is because you don't want to spend all of your energy, you know, 100 units of energy, only to get like 101 units of energy out. That's kind of inefficient. It's, uh, it's not practical from a 
civilization standpoint. And the beautiful thing about the renewable energy is that we have these learning curves. We have these abilities to manufacture more wind turbines, more solar panels. And as we do so, we figure out how to use fewer materials, which means spending less energy manufacturing them or digging up the raw ores. Solar panels have gotten a lot thinner over the past decade. Wind turbines have gotten bigger, but the amount of energy you can harvest is like, you know, like that pi r squared thing about the area of a circle. Well, it works the same way when you're, you're harvesting, you're obtaining energy from wind. So if you double the radius of the wind turbine blade, you actually quadruple the amount of energy you can collect. And so just pulling some, uh, some data offline here, there was an estimate in 2014 from, I think, the an Energy Transition website, which said that wind had maybe 18 in terms of energy EROI, and solar was maybe seven. And that would have been based on earlier data, still earlier data. And now we have regularly figures for wind in decent areas above 150. So that's well, well above the coal value of 30 that we've cited. And solar panels, uh, again, above 20. Uh, maybe not exactly the same as coal, but this is very definitely the range where you can put in a small amount of your civilization's energy use to get a huge harvest of energy. It's like instead of having to have 90% of your population be subsistence farmers, now it only has to be a few percent. And everyone else can, you know, specialize in medicine and knowledge and science and things like that. So with further improvements, these EROIs should only improve. Unlike with fossil fuels, as you get to lower and lower grade deposits, your technology improvement is offset by worse and worse geology. Whereas the earth is a very big place above ground and we aren't running out of optimal wind and solar places for a long time. Awesome. So let me see if I can say that back to you to, to prove I've understood it. What you're saying is that wind and solar are improving and so that the ROI exists right now it may be true, but we're locked in in some ways to the, the ROI for fossil fuels, but we have a much room to grow and improve in terms of renewable energies. That's right. I mean, we're pretty ingenious, so we're not totally locked in, but it'll be a lot easier to improve the EROI for renewables, for wind and solar, than it will be for fossil fuels. So there's a secondary point. Now, we can still imagine a world in which wind and solar don't have as good of an energy return on investment as coal. It's not our world, thankfully, but we could imagine one. And the thing about coal is that, or oil or natural gas, is that it only really exists in certain areas. You need kind of a, a geological accident kind of um, and the right fossils to, or the right creatures to die in the right conditions to get these deposits. So they're very sporadic. Whereas the availability of wind and solar, I mean, they're pretty much everywhere on the surface of the earth, you know, to one degree or other. And so even if we did have this hypothetical world where coal had an EROI of 30 and wind and solar were, at, I don't know, maybe 10, the fact of the matter is even just carpeting a very small percentage of your country with solar panels and wind turbines, you could ultimately generate more surplus energy with a huge amount of wind and solar deployment than you're going to probably ever get from a coal mine or from a, a number of coal mines because coal only forms in certain areas. Uh, it's not universally spread out the way that uh, solar and wind are. So uh, that's sort of a, another safety fact or another buffer, a reason for optimism with these renewables. Now, this isn't to say that we should be careless. There, there will be cases where 
you know, there may be migrating species or other endangered uh, uh, creatures where we might have to carve out certain areas where we might not prioritize putting uh, renewables. But if you think about Canada, second largest country on the planet, some portions of it unseated, there's a lot of area that we can find excellent renewable resources in areas which don't impact the web of life. Awesome. Thank you so much for answering that question. And if anyone listening has other questions, please do submit them. We will continue doing this mailbag section for as long as people send us their questions. So if you have a question, let us know. We'll find the right person to answer them and we'll get there. All right. And now we're going to read a write-up that our contributor Christopher Moray has prepared for us about the circular economy. And Chris writes, This past January, at the World Economic Forum, the organization's circular economy released its latest Circularity Gap Report, which is essentially a promotional document for the concept of circularity. It states that the world economy is 8.6% circular, while it needs to be 17% circular to avoid a 2 degree Celsius rise in global temperatures. While the concept of a circular economy has been circulating for several years, the EU, for instance, began using the concept in 2015 in its approach to assessing the sustainability of its natural resource use. What it is and how it should be measured is still something of an ongoing discussion amongst environmental economists. In broad strokes, the circularity gap seeks to measure how much the physical materials of the planet, metal, non-metal minerals, biomass, and fossil fuels, are circulated back into the economy or back into the environment in some regenerative or non-destructive capacity. Fossil fuel consumption, for instance, is almost entirely unrecoverable, with the exception of a small number of plastics. Certain biomaterials, however, can be either returned to the earth like compost or reprocessed like recycled paper or glass. What this report specifically does is promote the idea as a conceptual strategy and link in greater detail this way of accounting for material flows within the economy to distinct policy and investment choices. We say investment because circular economy presents itself in part as a resource to businesses looking to invest in what the World Economic Forum and other organizations have branded as the fourth industrial revolution, or Industry 5.0, which are both concepts that circular economy explicitly associates itself with on their website and in their publications. For instance, in April, Circular Economy launched, quote, a free online step-by-step guide teaching apparel brands how to launch a rental or resale business in under a year. The reason that the economy only has to be 17% circular to avoid a 2 degrees Celsius temperature rise is that fossil fuels make up 15% of the overall material extracted from the earth, but they make up 65% of greenhouse gas emissions. Reducing greenhouse gas emissions, therefore, represents only a small part of the circularity potential of all material inputs and outputs. But circular strategies often reduce multiple material inputs at once. For instance, using locally sourced building materials like bamboo or other woods 
reduces both the use of concrete and the emissions associated with transporting building materials long distances. One odd thing about the circularity gap report is its confusing numbers. The executive summary claims that a global circular economy can solve our emissions gap. It states, quote, In adopting a roadmap packed with circular strategies, we can pave the way for the systemic transformations needed to course-correct the global economy, going far beyond the limitations of current policy and national climate pledges. The current pledges bring us over 15% of the way. The circular economy delivers the other 85%. This claim is repeated in the section titled Material Extraction and Greenhouse Gas Trajectory. But the report argues further down, quote, from a global warming perspective, and with the aim of closing the emissions gap, our circular scenarios have the potential to cut 39% of total global emissions. This discrepancy doesn't seem to be clearly accounted for anywhere in the report. Despite the report's emphasis on new technologies, particularly biomaterials, the term circular may seem like a misnomer, as so little material is recirculated in our current, in our current economy or even has the possibility of being recirculated. The report therefore focuses far more on reducing the amount of materials we use reducing the use of concrete, reducing emissions from long-distance transport, reducing emissions and biomass use from lowering global meat consumption, etc. The report makes the tall claim, quote, the circular economy ensures that with less material input and fewer emissions, we can still deliver the same or better output. And Chris finally notes that the report does not talk about how its goals will affect regular people's lives or how the circularity transition would be funded. And so coming from the Davos class, coming from the World Economic Forum, uh, this circularity gap report, not talking about funding, not talking about how, how it affects people, can be seen as a greenwashing, not only for the capitalist system as it exists, but also for the ruling class of billionaires as they exist, because it, uh, it, it has them speaking this way, but provides no practical discussion. It would be remiss, and I would not want, the, the, the circular economy as a concept to be lumped in to this particular version of the circular economy that's being pushed forward by, you know, the World Economic Forum. Because, you know, the circular economy as a concept, any type of economy we have, whether it's degrowth or no growth or low growth or whatever type of economy we exist in the future, it's going to have to be massively more circular than it is now. And so, action in that direction is a requirement regardless of sort of what other types of economic systems exist around it because we just have to start using and reusing things at a much higher rate and the one other point i would make is that the thing about a circular economy one of the main things about circular economy is that honestly its value i think has less to do with climate change than it does has to have to do with sort of the, some of the other more grandiose ecosystem problems we have you know, a circular economy most specifically should be a primary way we say tackle the plastics problem, which honestly, like we humans are basically half ignoring right now because of climate change takes everyone's effort. But like the fact that we're slowly coating this entire planet in plastics is very bad. 
and a circular, a well-run circular economy would should would and should drastically reduce that because it should be taking it back in and, and bring it back. Maybe there's not as direct a line between circular economy and carbon emission reductions and like therefore like climate change action. It's like there is something to be said for like the paradigm shift that a circular economy requires that would then put us on better footing to um, set up successful systems for like, I don't know, equitable cohabitation with non-human animals and stuff like that. And just like in general, not getting ourselves in this same sort of gross cycle of resource extraction and exploitation that we currently find ourselves in. Yeah, super excited to bring back long time friend of the show current record holder for most times appearing on the show tim nash the sustainable economist welcome tim thanks so much for having me back on the show today short quick chat to disambiguate maybe i shouldn't be using the word disambiguate to to provide some clarity for some people around some conflation that is occurring in i think media and circles around the term sustainable investing and so I had a question and I was like, I know who should answer this question. It's Tim. And so thank you for joining this question. Absolutely. I mean, I've been talking about sustainable investing on this show for quite a while. So longtime readers, you know, hopefully have a little more context than the average person. But, you know, I think that what's happening in the media right now, it definitely is providing a lot of creating a lot of confusion. And so really nice to be able to help clear things up. So for context for listeners, there was a round of articles in the late March that had a headline something like this. This is a Reuters headline, but something like this. Ex-BlackRock exec starts row over value of sustainable investing. And you're like, okay, BlackRock has been made news for coming out and saying climate change has to be considered. And so, you know, if someone like uh, ex-BlackRock executive says something like this, people pay attention. The problem is, if you then scroll into the article, the, the black ex-BlackRock executive's name is a Tariq Fancy. And the second paragraph reads, many ESG funds have almost no impact and create, quote, a placebo effect and delay the overdue regulatory reforms in government that we, we need, end quote, to address issues like climate change. And so when I saw those two things conflated, I immediately was like, ESG is not the same as sustainable investing. And yet I would not do the best job explaining exactly why. <laughs> so sure. that is why I am very glad you're here. Can you explain <laughs> what the difference is between right. these two things? All right. So let me give the little context. So BlackRock is a parent company of iShares, very popular ETF company. They've been coming out with all kinds of sustainable investment offerings and, you know, have really been sort of trying to push themselves as a leader when it comes to sustainable investing. So Mr. Fancy, he worked at BlackRock as they were kind of launching these initiatives. I don't know exactly what happened, whether, you know, but he was working in the industry and now is no longer, but has started writing these op-eds and kind of doing a bit of a media tour, I would say basically bashing sustainable investing or certainly, you know, and it's weird because what we agree on is that it's not enough. 
that, you know, certainly sustainable investing is not a silver bullet, but he's saying it's a distraction that, you know, instead of sustainable investing, you should be pushing governments to do it. Whereas I'm a real believer in diversity of tactics, that we need all hands on deck, all approaches. Yes, do governments. Yes, do sustainable investing. And, you know, but what it has that has been fodder for a lot of the people that push back against sustainable investing. And this is something I've dealt with my entire career, you know, salmon swimming upstream, you know, bashing my head against the wall for, you know, the first part of my career when I was still trying to convince people within the industry that this was a viable investment strategy. And it really, you know, it's, it's shown, frankly, a lot of ignorance within the media, because like you said, they tend to equate ESG investing with sustainable investing. When really ESG investing is like one piece, it's sort of one tactic. So the way I think about it, the language that I use is that these broad terms like sustainable investing or what we used to call socially responsible investing, that these are the broad umbrella terms. And then under those umbrellas, you have a whole bunch of different tactics. Now, the language that I use is that some of them are what I call doing less evil versus some that are doing more good. And ESG investing would fall squarely under the doing less evil category, where the goal there is to earn broad market returns with as much diversification as possible, given your specific ethical criteria. And some of these ESG funds are going to be a tiny step in the right direction. And some of them are going to be, you know, could eliminate, let's say, the bottom half of companies based on this ESG environmental social governance scoring system. And this scoring system is not perfect. There's a lot of room to, to improve it, but it's getting better. And it's the best thing we have right now. And so, you know, there's that piece and the impact there. I can argue that that's a little more academic, but, you know, it's not going to be the we're not going to change the world exclusively through ESG, but when used in combination with other strategies, another sort of doing less evil one is shareholder engagement, where you can actually own shares in the company and push those companies by voting your shares and like being an activist at the AGM. At the same time, you know, on the doing more good side, we do have this idea of sort of green investing or what I would call thematic investing, where we're investing in these themes like renewable energy, clean tech, water infrastructure, et cetera. Now those are a lot more volatile, those are riskier, right? With like renewable energy, we saw it pop when Biden got elected and it was like really, really high. And then it actually has come down like 20, 30%, you know, in the last couple of months, it was just, it just rode too hot. You know, markets have a way of figuring these things out if something's overpriced. So, you know, you really want to be careful with that. And that's why for me, it's part of it is doing less evil. Part of it is doing more good. And then what gets me really excited is this idea of impact investing which is going to be things like community bonds and green bonds and microfinance and these like direct investments. So, you know, it's really tricky because I'm hearing a lot of like, oh, ESG, sustainable investing, like it doesn't matter. There's no impact. And it's like, well, okay, if you're looking at this like small little subsect of the industry that happens to be quite popular and is growing a lot right now, okay, we can have a conversation and there's at least a debate there about what is the impact. And, you know, let's measure that. Let's talk about it. But, you know, if we're talking about, you know, a community bond in the Center for Social Innovation or in the sketch, you know, nonprofit creating, you know, art studios for at-risk youth here in Toronto, you know, there is no doubt that we're having that positive impact. Really what it comes down to is balancing sort of these doing less evil versus doing more good approaches, understanding that sometimes there is a trade-off in terms of risk, in terms of liquidity. So just re really being smart and deliberate about how you're investing your money. 
This is why I use the language investing intentionally, you know, and not trusting some of these labels that could be greenwashing, you know, but really actually looking at what's inside and figuring out, is this right for you? One quick follow-up. In this particular instance with Tariq Fancy, his sort of position seems to be that what we need is the government to, you know, improve regulations. And obviously there are government regulations in regards to like requiring specific reporting structures because ESG stands for environmental, social, and government corporate policies. So they're really the policies that these companies have in place. And when you get that far down, it begins to be like, oh yeah, of course your policies of doing better X, Y, Z is not necessarily going to make you change your business model to become a impact-based company, right? So like once you sort of strip these things away, you can begin to see this difference between do good and do less evil. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because I, we agree, like I agree with him that these banks and these financial institutions should not be left to regulate themselves, right? We don't want to just leave it up to them to solve all these problems. Like I'm completely on board with that. You know, unfortunately, the message seems to be getting co-opted by perspectives and people who are saying, you know, oh, it's not good enough. It's not, you know, it's a distraction. You shouldn't bother doing it at all, that it has no role to play and that this is sort of a reason to kind of, you know, step on sustainable investing and saying, you know, nobody should be doing that. Whereas really, you know, I think it's so much more nuanced than that, that, you know, we need diversity of tactics. We definitely need regulation around some of these new ESG disclosure rules and mandates. You know, there was the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting uh, last week and Warren Buffett, and they voted very strongly against climate risk reporting and diversity and inclusion reporting just saying that, you know, that's not their business and they had their very, their arguments against that. So, you know, there's a lot of work to be done there. They're not going to do it until they're mandated. But what I would say is that if you're an investor who cares about sustainability, it's kind of important for you to at least go in with eyes wide open. Like, am I investing in companies that are actively saying that we shouldn't be doing this? We shouldn't be providing that information. So the space is evolving really quickly. And I kind of always remember the old adage where sort of first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, you know, then, then they argue with you or whatever it is. I don't know exactly. I feel like I haven't gotten that far. I got ignored and laughed at for so long. That, you know, I'm kind of like, but now, you know, it's, I'm starting to see these arguments and very, very weak arguments, but are still being used as people that are really trying to slow down this massive transition that's happening right now towards sustainable investing. Yeah. And we're seeing... We had an interview about a month or two ago now with a campaigner from Some of Us who was working exactly in these sort of shareholder actions. So if you are someone who's invested in some of these companies that is, un is dissatisfied with your, your investment's ability to do this reporting, there are ways in, in organizations that are helping people actually sort of take action and try to push these things forward. Absolutely. There are more options than ever before. The work I'm doing with Good Investing, uh, I'm about to launch an online course, which I'm really excited about that I think is just going to make it even easier for people to be able to learn more about these issues and then actually take those steps and, and take their action to make sure that their investments are aligned with their values. That really it's, it's been incredible the momentum and the actual dollars flowing in this direction that I think for a big part of my career, there was a lot of talk. There was a lot of interest, you know, people wanted to sort of pick my brain and understand more. 
And that now the questions I'm getting are all super practical. Like, how do I actually do this? What does this mean? You know, how do I follow through and actually move my money? All right, listeners, if you have stuck with us this whole time and you've listened to the whole show, we would truly appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever it happens to be that you're listening. Rating and reviewing helps not only spread the word about the show, but it allows you to pass along to us your valuable feedback, which we promise to take into consideration going forward. Thanks so much for listening to The Green Majority. We'll see you next week.